Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Paulina Brand, who is an award-winning historian and also a professor at Vassar College. The Barbizon, uh, I went to Barnett College, and in those days, they didn't really have dorms to accommodate everyone. And the Barbizon was where parents from all across America wanted their daughters to go because no men allowed. It had very strict rules and regulations, women only. And it had some of the leading women of that time. They had people living there like Grace Kelly, Sylvia Plath, who wrote The Bell Jar, which is the fictionalized version of what the Barbizon was all about. Esther Greenwood. There were so many incredible women. Gail Green, who lived there in this hotel, which came to life in the 1920s, 1928. And it was the most unique place. But I'm curious, Paulina, what made you think about the Barbizon all the later? Well, first of all, thank you for having me. I'm delighted. And yes, actually, the paperback came out just a month or two ago. So it's true, the book Good. is a year old, but the paperback is out. What made me want to write about the Barbizon? I mean, it had to be written about. Um, it's, it's such an important place. Um, it was a place that really was sort of an incubator for, for, as you noted, these women who became famous later. But it was also fascinating to see them sort of in that milieu, being young, vulnerable, scared like everybody else, um, coming to New York to sort of try to act out their ambition. So it needed to be uh, written. Of course, I thought, well, you know, famous hotel, famous women stay there. There are going to be so many records left of the time. Not at all. Everything disappeared. There are no blueprints. There are no guest registries. Nothing. And so I have to say it was a real adventure sort of trying to build this hotel back in a sense using interviews and and, and photographs and and letters I found and office memos and so forth. So it was a real plethora of of, um, investigation, I would say. But it was it was exciting. And it's it's you know, it has its it has its place now. The Barbizon has its history. And it's also a history of New York through the 20th century. It's a history of of the women's experience through the 20th century. Right. And a lot of people today don't realize that then Mademoiselle Magazine and magazines were such a major part of all of our lives. And the Barbizon was where Mademoiselle put up their winners every year Mm -hmm. of the guest editor contest and one of the exactly. leading secretarial schools in the world. I remember I got out of Barnett College and I was expected not to get an MBA, but to go to one of these major exactly. schools. Exactly. Right? Yes. 
Exactly. All of this is forgotten. And it's interesting, you, you bring up Mademoiselle magazine, and that was a key way for me to literally enter the hotel was through Mademoiselle magazine. But I was surprised because I remembered Mademoiselle magazine from the 80s when it was, you know, it was sort of a B-rated magazine mm-hmm. at best, sort of a fluffy teenage young woman right. um, magazine. I hadn't realized it had this remarkable history where it was not, not only was it a pioneer in so many ways, and it, it created the concept of, of a youth market, but it also in many ways, because the, the woman who ran it, um, Betsy Talbot Blackwell, who, who was editor in chief from the 1930s until 1917, she was remarkable. And one of the things she did, well, well, she did many things, but one of them, simply, they didn't have much of a budget for fiction for um, to, to pay writers. So they ended up really having cutting-edge fiction in Mademoiselle because they could pay those writers less. And then they, of course, became famous later. So the magazine was really – was was just top-notch in terms of fashion, but also in terms of literature. And it was why women, young women like Sylvia Plath and Joan Didion, were desperate to get one of these famed summer internships at Mademoiselle Magazine, because if you wanted to be a writer, you wanted to be an artist, you, you wanted to win that competition and be brought to New York and sort of shadow the editors at Mademoiselle Magazine and stay at the Barbizon Hotel and Betsy Talbot Blackwell had intentionally decided when this program started um, in the 1940s, she decided that it was vital that the women, the young women who win the, this prize, that they stay at the Bobson because it was the only way she could get parents to sign off that their little girls came to New York without chaperones. And that was right, a big and- thing then. And they weren't girls of enormous wealth. They were mostly ambitious, middle-class girls. And if they wanted to stay there, it wasn't like a done deal. You had to get into that hotel. Yes, exactly, exactly. And in fact, there was... you're absolutely right to point out that these these uh, competition winners at Mademoiselle Magazine who are staying at the Barbizon, they really did come from from middle class, working class backgrounds. They would not have been able to stay at the Barbizon otherwise, um, but they were often also shocked because the internship didn't pay that much. So they were really scrounging. Luckily, they w- w- were invited as part of their, their time in New York. They were invited to these lunches and dinners and sort of all these all these events where they make sure they ate um so that was that was really important but yeah they um you know what i also try to do in the book is juxtapose somebody famous with a a friend who was there also as part part often as part of the program um with a friend who was from a very different background and sort of so that we could really see. So for example, for Joan Didion, um, I juxtapose her with her best friend from Berkeley, um, Peggy LaVillette. And, and it's really interesting to see it this way in the same way, Sylvia Plath, I really contrast with Neva Nelson. And we always talk about um, Sylvia Plath, who of course, as you rightly said, wrote the bell jar, which is a, I mean, a spot on description basically of her time there. Um, and, so 
with Sylvia Plath, we often talk about her father died when she was young and, and her mother uh, ran secretarial courses to keep the, the family in sort of that middle class mode and so forth. But one of the women who was there at the Barbizon and at Mademoiselle in 1953 with Sylvia Plath was Neva Nelson. Neva came from a far worse background. She had grown up in the, in the foster system in, in California. Her parents were alive, but they were alcoholics. They couldn't take care of her. She was in and out of foster homes. By high school, she was living in a motel. You know, and she managed through this competition to get herself to New York and stay in the Barbizon alongside uh, Sylvia Plath and, and, and others who became well-known later. So, it, yeah, it was sort of these remarkable stories that took place inside this hotel. I know. Felicia Richard yes. and Liza Minnelli. You had absolutely everyone. And yep. the you just didn't check into the hotel. They had to approve you at the desk. Yes, yes exactly. And there was that you were great as ABC. And a lot of people speculated that had to do with your looks. It actually had to do with your age. So if if you were sort of 22 and under, you and A. So you can imagine what a C and a D was. Um, mm. and because they also, they the hotel wanted to keep up its image, its image of the most glamorous women's hotel in New York, even though the reality behind those walls was very different. This was their sort of public face. And so it was important to management that they bring in young women. Indeed, the hotel was called the Doll's House in the 1950s. Uh, a lot of models and actresses stayed there, so it was known for this. Um, so they would bring in young women. Of course, it depended on what time of year you, you arrived and tried to get a room. The rush, of course, was sort of August, September, October. But if you arrived in February and you were in your 30s, <laughs> you had a much better shot. Right. And they had a, a coffee shop which yeah. was very desirable because you could <laughs> sit alone or you could pick someone up. There were always men in the lobby of this hotel. Oh, exactly. As you said, men could not go beyond the lobby. And, of course, they tried, and there were many famous incidents of, of men claiming they had made it up past the lobby. But what I also sort of quintessential Barbizon is the way it was built. It was this Italianate lobby inlaid floor. And it also had a mezzanine level, which was a wraparound balcony. And so it was perfect for the young women to look down and see other women's dates. But also some women, they, they use that to check out a blind date they had. And if they didn't like what they saw, they would sort of run back to their rooms or they'd leave the Barbizon through the coffee shop. That was another way out. And yeah, right, the coffee shop, I mean, J.D. Salinger would, would lurk there and pretend he was a Canadian hockey player to pick up women. Um, it was the place to be, to, to be seen, but also exactly as you say, um, Sylvia Plath sort of famously talks about how she was sort of sitting in that coffee shop having her morning coffee on the day of the Rosenbergs' uh, execution, how upset she was. Um, mm. It's both in her, in her diary and also in, in the bell jar. So, it, yes, it, it was a very important appendage to the Barbizon. And when you found the women, some of who are gone, long gone, 
of course. Were they eager to talk to you? Um, to let me see. Yes, they 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 were eager to talk to me, and and um, particularly uh, I have to you know do a shout out to Neva Nelson, who, as I say, was there with Sylvia Plath and had a very sort of hard knocks life up until then. Um, she had decided at a certain point to try to locate the other women in the Sylvia Plath group. And so she had sort of become a little bit of an archivist, um, and she was super helpful. And women were willing to talk, and but it was really, it w- when you write about a time that, and the women you write about are still alive, you have a certain responsibility. I certainly feel that way. So when my book uh, first came out, just as a as a sort of a draft, the reader's copy that they send out, um, I made sure I sent out a reader's copy to each of the women that I interviewed. And of course, I was terrified that they, because they'd had really bad experiences before with other books. And they, that was one reason a lot of them were reluctant, particularly the 1953 Sylvia Plath Barbizon group were very reluctant to speak initially because of their bad experiences. So I sent it out. And what was, I have to say, that was probably my, my greatest, happiest moment was that so many of them wrote to me and said, you know, for the first time, I feel seen and I understand my own decisions at the time because I see it within the larger picture. And that's really, and in many ways, it was a great relief for them. Some of them made decisions that they weren't too happy about, but they realized the pressure under which they were living at the time, sort of, you know, the way one internalizes one's decisions and forgets that it's part of the zeitgeist, you know, it's part you don't have that many choices or you feel you don't have them. And so um, that was really gratifying to feel like I'd sort of nailed it and they were telling me that I'd nailed it. So that was lovely. Yes, and, and you found it. I mean, the cultural institutions of the time, mm-hmm. to, when I got out of Barnet, unless you wanted to be a doctor, you know, or a lawyer, right? you definitely went, if you could afford it, to secretarial school. Oh, yeah. Absolutely. And Katie Gibbs, of course, was the most the famous one. one. And that's and Katie Gibbs was so popular in the 1930s, particularly uh, when all these women who had indeed graduated from Barnard, graduated from Vassar. But it was the Great Depression that, that and that bachelor's degree was meaningless. They needed secretarial school. So Katie Gibbs, in fact, became more competitive to get in than Barnard and Vassar and so forth because it gave you a certificate with which you could actually find a job. And it, it exploded. I mean, it, it you know expanded so much because of this with these uh, women now clamoring to, to, to um, get in that they actually um, used two and then three floors of the Barbizon as the dormitory for Katie Gibbs in New York. So you really had this, you know, and a lot of models as well started to come in in the 1930s as well because it was... One of the, as the Great Depression, you know, was sort of dragging out, um, the idea that women were taking men's jobs, of course, became very resonant right. to the public. And so women sort of had to try to take jobs that men couldn't have, right? So by then, secretarial work was seen as women's work, so that was okay. And also modeling started to enter the picture. And of course, women models, right? A job that women <laughs> could do. Uh-huh. Um, so you, you see you see this sort of flurry of models and 
and and Katie Gibbs secretarial students with their white gloves and their hats they were not allowed to remove, not even in the subway. They had to have a certain image. So, of course, this also built up the image of the Barbizon. Without question. And the no men rule, when mm-hmm. they looked back, was that restriction in many ways? Although men try to get in all the time, disguised oh, as doctors and whatever. Exactly, as, as gynecologists, exactly, on call. Um, uh, did they, could you, I'm sorry, could you repeat that? No, did they think the men only rule was a plus oh, or a negative yes, in those years? Of course. Well, that's the thing. Depends which year, right? So you, it was definitely, I mean, at the beginning, up up until the early 1960s, it was an absolute plus because that restrictive rule meant freedom for women because it meant respectability. The hotel was seen as respectable because men were not allowed in beyond the lobby. And with respectability, women got freedom. And it's exactly the thinking that Betsy Talbot um, had in in terms of bringing the the Mademoiselle interns into into the Barbizon was because it was seen as respectable and therefore give them the freedom to come to New York. So, but that that link between restriction, sort of a nunnery, right? Restriction and freedom started to melt away. Of course, in the 1960s, women had more options. Um, women were not so keen on being somewhere where they couldn't invite men up to their room. And at the same time, by the, certainly by the 1970s, um, the hotel, just like New York, is starting to show real wear and tear. Meg Wallitzer, the writer, she was the last in the last group in 1979 for Mademoiselle magazine. And she wrote a wonderful thing about that summer. And she said, New York was looking like an episode of Kojak. So, um, yeah, it's a wonderful, it's a wonderful line. So actually by 1981, because women were not as keen to stay there anymore and the occupancy rates were so low, they had to bring men in. And there was a lot of kickback, but it was the only option. And they did this sort of um, very public raffle where the first man and the first couple uh, it was on val- yeah. it was on Valentine's Day, and they had balloons and music and cake, and then they gave the key to the first man and the key to the first couple, and they ran into the hotel and up beyond the lobby, right? Uh, so it's this big thing. But um, after that, actually, soon after that, the hotel closed down for multiple renovations, sort of turning itself into a regular hotel, and. Each time, it didn't quite work. And eventually, um, the hotel in the early 2000s, like, of course, at that point now, we went from sort of Kojak, New York, to increasingly expensive, much sought after New York. And so a lot of the hotel owners were turning their hotels into luxury condo buildings. And that's exactly what happened to the Barbizon. But what is fascinating is that as the renovations began in the 1980s and dragged on for about two decades before the building was turned into a condo building, during this whole time, you still had these women, right, who had contracts, who who were living at the Barbizon. And when these, these renovations started to happen, they hired a good tenant lawyer 
who discovered that their rooms are considered by New York law rent control rooms. So, so they they couldn't move. They couldn't be moved, or rather, they couldn't be moved out. And so it's fascinating as the hotel was being renovated in in this multiple versions of the 80s and the 90s, where on most floors, if you went to the end of the hallway, opened the door, behind it was the old barbazon with the old paint mm-hmm. and the old women. <laughs> incredible, incredible. And um, finally, in the early 2000s, when uh, it was going to be turned into condo and they had to completely gut it. I mean, it's, it's nothing like it used to look. Um, when they had to gut it, they moved the women out to another hotel and then moved them back in. And they have, there are about four, I believe, left now. I and they can't have believe it. Still own, I know, they have their own floor, beautifully renovated apartments, huge terrace. Yeah. <laughs> and ultimately, it's, it's funny because the, the, they were called these older women who stayed on and on and on at the hotel were called from the time the Plath was there. They were called the women and they were everybody's nightmare because, of course, the Barbizon was supposed to be this launching pad for your ambition. If you were still there, the idea was that you, you, you'd failed. Right. And so nobody wanted to be like the women. And, of course, the irony is that the women won out because they have their luxury uh, condo apartments exactly in New York today. It was fantastic. And the Barbizon, the hotel that set women free, now in paperback. But there were such good stories in it. I like um, when Liza Minnelli lived there, her mother, Judy Garland, (laughs) took care of that. And then you say... The desk went crazy because she called every three hours yeah. to check yeah. on her. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> well, exactly. It's a wonderful book. I really enjoyed reading it. Thank you. And you're going to find out that, yes, some of these the ladies are still alive, living in their multi-million dollar yeah. places <laughs> now. So, yes, they won in the end. Continued success. Thank you for the book, and I look forward to talking to you again. Wonderful. Thank you, Sully. Thank you. Bye-bye now. pleasure. Bye-bye. I'm Joan Hamburg, and you're listening to WABC. (laughs) 